In podcasting, I find a mockery of the natural order. Two living things, podcast hosts to the hilt, talking not with thought for savagery or even for their own survival, but only to share their movie opinions. It seems that they embody both the incredible warmth of humanity, while also the extraordinary frailty of the human creature. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Sarah Welch Larson. And I'm Werner Herzog. Yeah, nice try, Kevin. No, okay, no, I'm <laughs> Kevin McClendon. I'm sorry. <laughs> this week, we are going to be discussing Werner Herzog's documentary, Grizzly Man, which is part of the reason why I think Kevin wanted to bring Werner into the studio with us. I mean, when don't you want Werner Herzog in the studio is the real question. Fair enough. We are going to be talking about Grizzly Man in the second half of the show, but we are also going to be talking about another movie about nature, Red and Tooth and Claw. That would be the Idris Elba starring lion movie, Beast. All that's coming up on episode 346 of Seeing and Believing. I'm sorry, Werner Herzog. (laughs) attacks without eating his prey. Lions don't do that. At least no lion I've ever seen. Shh. Go back to the calls. Dad, Dad, please! Yes, we're here on episode 346 of Seeing and Believing, also uh, known as the jaundiced look at nature, red in tooth and claw episode. I'm feeling sanguine about it personally. (laughs) I I dig the wordplay. I'm looking forward to talking about Grizzly Man in the second half of this episode for for maybe obvious reasons. and especially interested to know your thoughts on it, because this is, if I'm not mistaken, this was your first Herzog documentary, right? First Herzog movie, period. I haven't seen any of his um, narrative movies at all either. So, okay, yeah, a, a huge first, I think, <laughs> in my education as a film goer. You, you always remember your first encounter with, with Werner Herzog, Teutonic <laughs> Uh, clinical uh, look at uh, the natural world. But we'll be getting to that in the second half of the show. For the first half, though, we're going to be looking at a fictional account of a killer beast locked in mortal struggle with mankind. That would be Beast. This is starring Idris Elba as Dr. Nate Daniels, a recently widowed doctor who returns to South Africa, where he first met his wife on a long-planned trip with their daughters to a game reserve managed by Martin, played by Charlto Copeland an old family friend and wildlife biologist. But what begins as a journey of healing jolts into a fearsome fight for survival when a lion, a survivor of bloodthirsty poachers who now sees all humans as the enemy, begins stalking them. So, Sarah, this falls into a tradition of human versus killer animal movies. Everyone from Robert Shaw and Jaws to Val Kilmer and Michael Douglas in The Ghost in the Darkness to Blake Lively in The Shallows has kind of had their shot at this kind of story. My question for you with beast is how does this movie and idris elba in the lead role measure up i'm of two minds um it is sort of spare and stripped down like a lot of those movies i feel like at at least with jaws there's no motivation for the shark it's just good old-fashioned story of a shark who hates a bunch of men and all of those men have to go out and kill it and then um if i remember right the shallows is pretty like it's basically a, a one location, could have been a play, but really it's a movie about Blake Lively versus this shark. And this kind of fits that mold, sort of, in terms of the running time. I think where it doesn't measure up for me is there's this desire to have a motivation for every single one of the characters, including this <laughs> lion. And I think that it would have worked even better if it had been even more stripped down. So you have Nate and his daughters out looking at wildlife with their friend, and then they get trapped out there due to circumstances beyond their control. 
And up until this point, there's a lot of interfamily tension because Nate's wife has died recently after he left her and his daughters. Um, and he blames himself for that. And his daughters blame him for leaving and also for the death of their mom. And there's just a lot of like interfamily tension that I feel like didn't really need to be there because I think that this would have been a much more effective story if it had literally just been a good old fashioned story about a lion who hates men <laughs> and the men who have to go out and hunt it. So I'm curious to know you read about it though i mean i i don't think you're wrong about the fact that the version of this film that really is stripped down to just raw basics uh two two living things are sort of locked in a struggle one of you know two enter the savannah only one leaves <laughs> like uh the 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 raw um will to survive i guess being the the focal point of the movie mm -hmm. um i maybe like it a little bit better than you in that I think that the family drama is at least theoretically interesting. I I don't know that its execution here fully works for mm. me, but I will say that there at the climax when the the family drama kind of becomes folded into this life or death struggle with the lion, I found that to be pretty effective. I don't know that everything leading up to that point fully justifies it. And I think that there's some pretty threadbare stuff going on with the, uh, the actual ways that the, the conflict is set up just mm -hmm. in terms of making this, this lion, not just a beast, but uh, a beast with a, with a plan <laughs> yeah. is, is maybe a, a little bit of a problem. I might also be slightly, biased because i i happened to watch grizzly man for the watch list segment before i went to go see beast mm -hmm. and so i was in a particular herzogian kind of my frame of mind where uh the the unfeeling chaos of nature is maybe even more scary than the nature that specifically hates humans and wants to see them dead I, and i'm right there with you because i also saw grizzly man before i saw this movie and um what stood out to me wasn't necessarily just the unfeeling chaos but the the bored indifference that i think herzog calls out when he's taking a look at the faces of the bears and there is no bored indifference on the face of this lion my core problem with this movie although i have a couple of other like issues that orbit that core problem are that this movie tries to anthropomorphize the lion a little bit too much. And I think that comes with the motivating factor of this lion is angry because its entire pride was killed off by poachers. Sure, that's great. That's a good motivation for a human being. But I don't think that that's necessarily all that scary because it feels like you're trying to explain away a force of nature on human terms. And here... I think it would have been even scarier if there just was no explanation for why there's a lion out there killing people. It might be a little bit too close to Jaws, maybe, but Jaws is also great for a reason. And part of that is just the shark is scary because it's a shark and it's going to eat people. And I guess we know now that sharks are cowards and they're not going to specifically go and hunt down human beings. But I don't know, like, that's fine. That's that's enough of a motivation for me is the animal is hungry and it wants to eat. It's it's interesting, too, because uh, the director, Balthazar Kormakur, is obviously he's aware kind of of this of this sort of uh, humans versus nature setup and how effective it can be when stripped down to the animals are just animals. And sometimes they will hunt and kill humans just because that's sometimes what happens uh early in the film we see the the older daughter uh of of idris elba she's you know uh just settling into this home they've just arrived in africa and she's wearing a jurassic park t-shirt mm -hmm. and if there's any uh sort of movie reference that you can make that really puts a button on the it is foolish to underestimate nature and uh, sometimes also nature has wild animals in it that will kill you. Mm -hmm. It's Jurassic Park. And obviously also you kind of naturally think of the velociraptors in that film and how they aren't just, you know, dumb lizards. The, the velociraptors in Jurassic Park have the, the way that Spielberg frames it anyway. They, they do have malice. They mm -hmm. aren't. They aren't purely sort of Herzogian brutes, but the ways in which the velociraptors kind of go about their business still feels very animalistic. 
And in Beast, it kind of feels like this lion really just wants to get Idris Elba specifically, or he really wants to get... It seems like it's on a quest for revenge, Mm -hmm. which, I, I mean, that I can understand that being theoretically interesting. I don't think it's interesting in practice, or at least not as interesting as it would be just to be confronted with something you can't understand that will kill you unless you get away from it. Yeah, I think the thing with the Velociraptors is they're scary because they're intelligent, but they're also only after people because they're hungry. And it's their instinct to chase whatever runs and then kill it and eat it. And like you said, the lion is out there specifically for revenge. And that feels like a motivating factor just a little bit too far into anthropomorphizing this animal in a way that just really doesn't work for me. Yeah, see, but I I don't know. Like <laughs> I, I don't I don't agree that the that the Velociraptors, they're 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 not just hunting. You know, when when we first see the Velociraptor open the door to the the kitchen. It's solving that, a it's, problem. It's solving a problem, but there's also that John Williams score. There's like the choral music. Like there's something going on there besides just this animal wants to eat something. Hmm. But I think the difference is Jurassic Park has an Ian Malcolm to sort of <laughs> to sort of contextualize that malice in in a way that still feels in keeping with the world of the film. In this one, it kind of feels like we're situated in a very grounded reality. Um, we've got a game a game warden played by Copley who is used to taking people on safaris and like playfully wrestling with lions himself, mm-hmm. and it, it's very commonplace to him. And so. When we get uh, Jason Voorhees, the the lion, coming after after everyone, it feels like a a big shift for the movie, and it, it feels like there's something not natural about it, and yet the movie doesn't really provide it. it it anthropomorphizes the the line like the the unnatural thing is this line for some reason feels like a human would mm-hmm. when wanting to meet out revenge a story told from this from the lion's perspective would basically be a revenge thriller yeah yeah and maybe that would be a much more interesting movie i think because then you wouldn't have to deal with the the interhuman conflict i don't know none of that worked for me at all honestly i think the the two characters that did work for me were the lion when the lion wasn't jason Voorheesing around um i think in my letterboxd review i actually referred to it as uh like Michael Myers, but sort of on steroids. That that might be even an even better. Uh, There's a moment when the lion peels itself off the ground after being injured, and I was like, "That's Michael Myers right there." This is Halloween <laughs> in the savannah. But between him and Martin, the game warden, like those were the only two characters that I really felt invested in, which was a shame because I think the movie really wanted me to be invested in the family dynamic between Idris Elba um, as Nate, and then Leah Jeffries as Nora, and Iana Haley as Mare. Um, And the movie kept reminding me of the urgency that these characters get back together and start to see eye to eye. And they kept it kept reminding me of the urgency of these characters are in a situation that they are not prepared for and they're going to die in. And every single time that the movie tried to remind me of the situation and just how dire it was, it felt like it deflated the tension instead of cranking it up. Mm -hmm. And maybe that plus the idea of this lion having just slightly more supernatural intelligence and strength and will just kind of made a lot of the the danger really fall flat for me. I I think maybe some stylization would have would have helped in the, in that area because Cormac does kind of he does make this a, in the filmmaking pretty grounded, you know. There's not we don't get, you know, lion vision or or anything. Yeah. Um and I, I don't necessarily want that in this movie. I think that would be very corny. But I think some level of stylization would benefit the film because it would allow those those moments where Cormac actively does sort of fold in the family drama into the uh, the conflict with the lion. It, it would make it feel of a piece rather than just as something that's sort of in there to fill the spaces between attacks. Mm-hmm. And I, I think because... The, everything is so grounded it doesn't uh, he doesn't succeed in kind of making that link in a way that feels fully earned yeah i think that might work um 
I don't know, the script felt like it was telling me exactly what it wanted me to feel at every single individual piece. And I think that the movie might have felt even more grounded and probably a little bit more believable to me if there had been maybe, I don't know, some sort of improvisation that was going on. Like the movie was filmed on location, I'm assuming for for verisimilitude, and it looks great. I think it looks fantastic. There's some very good camera work, which we should put a pin in and, and come back to. Um, but that groundedness just didn't extend past the way that the story is being presented for me. And I think, I don't know. <sighs> Here's my galaxy brain take. Maybe this would be interesting if it were a little bit more of a John Cassavetti style movie where everybody's talking over each other and kind of finding and feeling their way into the roles. I don't know. That might be more galaxy brain than I'm than I'm willing to go. <laughs> I, I mean, I will say that part of the reason maybe that I was a little bit more on board with the with the dramatic elements of of this movie was I do think that the the performances of the family, just in terms of the the way in which they seek to make this screenplay convincing to us, the audience, I think they do a pretty good job. I think mm. Elba does not phone it in at all. I was I was very impressed with his performance, even mm. as we're kind of getting, even as the dialogue is sort of wrote like, oh, I, I blame myself. I sh- it, you know it should have been me. You know that <laughs> yeah. that kind of stuff that we've seen in any number of movies about a guilty father. Mm-hmm. Elba finds. Uh, a delivery for those lines that freshened them for me. And mm. I, I thought uh, made them work about as well as they could. Um, I think that the performances from the, the two daughters are also pretty strong, mm-hmm. you know, under the circumstances, those circumstances being that it does feel a little bit rote and uh, not explored to the extent that would make it convincing, but also not stripped out to the extent that it doesn't, it feels like it's kind of, falling between two stools there Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i will grant you that their relationship with their father in places does feel very like real and believable to me particularly the moments where they're sniping at him because they feel like he's left them behind or they're disappointed in him because they don't feel like he's lived up to his place as being a father for them up until this point. And then the moment that danger happens, they're calling out his name and saying like, dad, dad, are you okay? And the moment that he walks off to go investigate some other like danger off in, in uh, the Savannah and in, in the bush, he, sorry. And then the moment that he like, walks off to go investigate some danger in the bush he tells them like stay in the car be quiet and then what do they do 15 seconds later they start calling for him which is a thing that your typical teenager would absolutely do um that did feel real to me i think maybe it was just the way that those lines were written where it's just a little bit too on the nose didn't quite work for me and then the pacing within those action scenes where you're being constantly reminded that these people are in danger i think that if we had been shown a little bit more of you're in danger because there is a lion batting at you and not having to have all of the additional information overlapping on top of that of people yelling like dad look out or here's like where's the gun where are the bullets etc like all of those additional pieces I think added like they kicked up dust when I would have liked to have just seen the scuffle without any dust maybe that's a little bit less realistic but I think it would have been a little bit more of a stripped down and clean movie. Let's talk a little bit about those those action sequences because and, and I think this might be where we get into that camera work mm-hmm. because um I do think that they're for and this is maybe the least surprising thing in the world, they're very good, mm-hmm. I think. And they'd better be because that's the whole reason we're here to see a movie called Beast in the first place. Is we want to we want to be frightened by this animal, we want to be on the edge of our seats, we want to genuinely be wondering how are our characters going to be getting out of this one Mm -hmm. and uh through his use of uh long takes Cormac really does sort of situate you in a space and uh the sound design also when the line thumps up against the side of the car like i jumped more than once Mm -hmm. and it wasn't sort of a jump scare it was it was more just this is a very large animal and that's naturally scary. Yeah. And, I, and, and Cormac Carew, through his, his filmmaking technique, uh, you know, doesn't just make you you know think about that, but also makes you feel it mo- much more viscerally. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, no, I will grant you the, the cinematography, I think, is quite good. So um, Balthasar Brecky and Philippe Rousselot did the did the cinematography. And they're not just in the action shots, but also just as you're situating the characters into a new space. There's a lot of these really long takes. And it took me a minute to like key into just how long these were. But it felt like a lot of them were uninterrupted. And there's just this camera wandering around the set in steady cam, mostly keeping focus on the characters, but really giving you a good sense of the space around them, making very good use of that on location shooting. And I did appreciate that as well as the very visceral, like, we are all here physically with these animals and with these people and we're stuck here, <laughs> like, watching them fight or try to get out of this situation. That I did appreciate very much because it did feel very, like, clear. Even at night, even when the action was a little bit muddled by the lighting, I could still tell what was going on. And I did appreciate that quite a bit. It's very uh, reminiscent of... Alfonso Cuaron's uh, techniques in movies like Children of Men and Gravity, mm. where those those long takes, you paradoxically, even though they kind of do allow you to see kind of all of the surroundings, they they create kind of, at least in this film, they create kind of the sense of claustrophobia. Like you mm. you know where all the exits are, so to speak, and you know that the lion's covering all of them. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that that's very savvy on, on Cormacur's part. Um, I I think that uh, the film would have benefited maybe from really just leaning into that. Uh, you know, in, in for example, Gravity, we don't get a whole lot of um, uh, a whole lot of dialogue belaboring Sandra Bullock's you know grief for life on Earth. It's it's you know it's there. It's established for us, but it's not something that has to keep being established over and over and over. Mm -hmm. um, and as the film goes on, the the struggle for survival kind of accretes its own meaning just by dint of the fact that you want her to be alive, not because you want her to get back to Earth to her family or whatever. You want her to be alive because it's good to be alive and it's bad to be dead. <laughs> yeah. And I, I feel like maybe that's the crucial ingredient that Beast is missing is it feels like it needs to give us a reason to worry about Idris Elba mm -hmm. whereas in a movie and, and it's good to like have characters that you care about but I think for a movie of this sort it's it's mostly important just to establish that bodily harm is scary mm -hmm. and you the the desire to live is possibly the most fundamental drive in in the human race yeah. um and that's really what you need first and foremost and all everything else is just window dressing, and maybe there might just be a little bit too much focus on the window dressing. And I think that's my beef with the script, ultimately, is the characters are... T and maybe this is something that characters in real life, like in this grounded story, probably would do, where they would say, like, the lion shattered a ton of glass in the window, or the moment a lion bites somebody on the leg, they'll yell, like, the lion got me. And I think... I don't know. It felt like the script didn't fully trust the audience to understand what was going on or to understand like the thematic stakes underlying like the very real and physical and visceral stakes that are also going on there. I don't know. It, it felt like the movie was trying to be two things at once. And one is a movie where Idris Elba basically like regains his pride in both senses, both pride and then also like headship of his pride and his family. And then also a movie where Idris Elba punches a lion. And frankly, I would have preferred a movie where it was just a movie where Idris Elba punches a lion and it had tried, it hadn't tried so hard to get these big, important thematic ideas shoehorned into there because I think that those would have grown into the movie naturally. And I think that's where my thing about Cassavetes kind of comes in too, because if the characters had been allowed to improvise or say something that would have felt a little bit more natural or a little bit more suited to the setting and not just trying to clarify what's already going on screen, I think I would have bought the action a little bit more and maybe we would have gotten something a little bit more thematically cohesive out of it too. Hmm. I I don't know. I I think that the the climax where we get the the, the final toe-to-toe -to -toe confrontation between yeah. Elba and the lion, um, it's in that scene that I, I get I, I sense the the vague shape of what Cormacur was going for with the uh, with a family drama as well. The fact that at the end of the day, it's uh, this father 
uh, fighting to defend his pride against an interloper. Mm-hmm. And the the way that that confrontation takes place again in in a single take, it's to the death. Mm-hmm. There's real it's really no contest, you know, uh, but uh, Elba fights on anyway. And I think in that moment, the action kind of acquires the sort of emotional heft mm-hmm. that the the film was really building towards. Um, I don't, I, and I think that I kind of wish that that kind of, uh, quality had found its way earlier in the film as well. Cause it feels like at the end, oh, I see what he's doing, but was that really, um, of a piece with what came before with the conversations about the, the dead mother and mm-hmm. the, the father's neglect of his daughter's photography hobby? Like, are those things the the same thing as the final climactic confrontation between man and lion not really mm-hmm. and maybe that's where while i appreciated the film and i don't i wouldn't say that i disliked it mm-hmm. that's the part where i i kind of come to think that this film could have been a lot better than it was and instead it, it feels disposable Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree with you, like with, with where you've landed on the movie. I think I feel a little bit more on the indifferent side, though. Maybe, 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 I don't know, the indifferent stare of nature back at <laughs> back at this nature that's here. Well, that's a good note to end it here. We're definitely going to be talking more about the indifferent stare of nature in our second segment, where we talk about Werner Herzog's Grizzly Man. In the meantime, listeners, if you've had a chance to see Beast, it is currently playing in theaters everywhere. We would love to hear your thoughts about that. You can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Or if you want to get in touch with us on Twitter, you can do that at cbelievepod. That's cbelievepod. And now it's time for the part of the show that we're calling The Conversation. It's where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, keeping the conversation about movies going. And we had a, we have quite a lot to talk about in this segment. We heard a lot about our, we heard a lot from, from you, our listeners this weekend. And I, I don't know, I just love it when that happens. I absolutely do too. It's nice to have like an actual conversation going online as well as here in person. Um, but you did say that we have a lot to talk about, which makes me feel like this is a, a family meeting kind of deal. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's, it's all good things. So uh, I don't know, maybe I'm just in a in a buoyant mood from all the feedback we got this week, but we've got an exciting announcement too. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've, we've decided, we've been kind of thinking about as we look ahead to the future, especially with, you know, award season going to be kicking up here in a, in a little bit and thinking about also how fun it's been to have the watch list segment, but also how that takes up an entire segment of the show, which mm-hmm. cuts down on the number of new releases that we can talk about. Mm-hmm. And we're thinking, well, how can we still like offer our thoughts uh, on these on these new releases? How can we give our listeners more to talk about mm-hmm. in the conversation segment? And the la- the answer we landed on was... How about bonus episodes? So listeners, uh, we are in September going to be starting with at least one bonus episode every month. We'll uh, try to be releasing it uh, the first Wednesday of the month. Mm -hmm. And this is just a, you know, just an extra little something for you guys. We uh, maybe it'll be like just a single review of a new release. Uh, The first one that we're going to be doing is actually going to be our fall and winter movie preview. Can't which, wait to get to that conversation in particular. Yeah. And there's there's a lot of, of great movies coming out. So we definitely want to make sure that we had a gave ourselves the chance to cover that on the air. So keep an eye out for that in September, listeners. But keep an eye out for these bonus episodes every single month. We are just excited to give you more to listen to, more to talk about, and uh, more movies to see. And you won't have to do anything extra either. These are just going to show up in your podcast feed. So if you are subscribed to the podcast, you will get these bonus episodes automatically. And if you're not subscribed to the podcast, now is a great time to hit that, to smash that subscribe button, (laughs) as the kids say. Uh, But we'll, we'll leave that there. And we will turn our attention to the conversation portion of the show. So like I said, Sarah, uh, I was really happy about uh, all the feedback we got this week. And maybe one of the the most exciting uh, conversations that we had Mm -hmm. on Twitter was from Micah Rickard. He wrote in to 
uh, tell us his thoughts on Picnic at Hanging Rock. And he says, Picnic at Hanging Rock was such a delight to discover. Movies that resist being parsed through and center on unsettling emotional territory is becoming one of my favorite subgenres. And you responded with, we love the numinous at seeing and believing. Uh, Micah went on to say, maybe I'm landing on a way to view the distinction. Many movies want you to think about them endlessly. They stick with you, but they are stuck in your mind. But Picnic and Persona and much of Tarkovsky isn't stuck in my mind. I feel stuck in them. That's such a great way to put it. <laughs> I really like that. And that's I'm, that might be the most perfect way to describe Tarkovsky, especially, mm-hmm. because he does seem in movies like Stalker and Solaris to be intent on drawing the viewer into a world and just making them inhabit it. Mm-hmm. And I don't oh know. I think that's a really great thought. Thanks so much for for articulating that for us, Micah. That was a really great conversation. Definitely loved being a part of that, too. We also um, asked our usual Twitter question, which we tend to do on Sunday afternoons. So if you're scrolling through Twitter on a Sunday afternoon, come seek us out as well, because we usually have a movie-related question. This week, we just wanted to know, what's your favorite movie animal, apropos of the fact that we're talking about Beast and Grizzly Man. So we got quite a few really good answers in here, although um, a few of these aren't exactly animals. Some of them are a little bit more mythical. So Kevin, maybe we can hash that out a little (laughs) bit. Um, But uh, one of my favorite answers was from Dave Lester, who wanted to know how about Jaws, the stubborn mechanical shark that reportedly wouldn't work well on set turned into one of the all time great terrors don't go into the water. Yeah, that's a really good one. And that also seemed to be a recurring theme in the responses that we got from listeners on Twitter was a lot of them gravitated towards uh, monstrous animals or killer animals or, you know, various life forms that wanted to see you die. (laughs) Uh, We also heard from uh, Eli Price, who wrote in to say, honestly, the first thing that comes to mind is the monster in Bong Joon-ho's The Host. I don't know if I'd say it's my favorite or that's a typical animal but it's one that has stuck with me visually and thematically. And I mean, in terms of creature design alone, I can't fault that answer. The the slimy monster in, in the host, which is some sort of combination of, I don't know, tadpole and lizard and fish is just gnarly and and one for the ages very hungry salamander probably Mm -hmm. yep yep um ron sturry also responded and said that other than maybe the answer eli gave it has to be seabiscuit which he says is also the best movie about an animal i actually haven't seen seabiscuit and i'm Mm. i'm a certified horse girl so that might be one to check out at some point i mean uh seabiscuit is good i it's been a long time since i've seen it if i were going to go with a movie horse though i might have to go with the black stallion from the black stallion i, mm. I mean i'm assuming you've seen that as i actually self- haven't seen that one either can you even really call yourself a horse girl if you haven't seen the black stallion i did though? do horseback riding lessons in okay. middle school okay. so well, well we'll maybe have that for a future watch list segment excellent we heard from Lindsay dunn who said falcor or the cheshire cat so more of those um fantasy creatures i think which Honestly, I'll buy it. I I think that they're great answers, and they're definitely not ones that I personally would have thought of, which is part of the reason why I like asking these questions to begin with. Yeah, Falcor, especially. I was was like, oh, yeah, I haven't thought about Falcor in a minute, so that was kind of (laughs) nice to see that pop up. Definitely. And then uh, Twitter user, that guy, no name given, that's that's his actual (laughs) display name, uh, said quite a few good answers. Um, King Kong, Godzilla, Mothra, any kaiju, basically. So I'm on board with that as well. Benji. And then a a question for you, Kevin. Do Wookiees count? Wookiees do not count. I think that Chewbacca would be very offended to be referred to as an animal. He might, I don't know, I've, I've heard that Wookiees tend to, you know, pull arms out of sockets, that sort of thing. I, I, I don't know. I, uh, iffy, iffy at best. Probably wouldn't work. Um, and then finally, he also said uh, that dog from Patterson, which I think is a great pick for a movie animal. It's not a movie animal that I would want in my house necessarily. I was I was just as mad as Adam Driver was at, at that dog, and I like dogs. So, I don't know, an interesting movie animal, perhaps. Best movie animal? Uh, jury's still out. It's a good question. I mean, if you want a really good movie animal, I just saw Prey last week, and there is an extremely good dog in Prey. So if, if you're looking for... A good dog. I know they're all good, but this one is exceptionally good. <laughs> well, thanks to all of our listeners for for writing in and, and giving us those thoughts. Uh, if you are listening to this right now and have some 
uh, thoughts on good movie animals that weren't mentioned already, you know, our inbox or our Twitter feed is always open to your thoughts. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be talking about maybe some very bad movie animals (laughs) or not bad, just chaotic movie animals. I would argue the animals are just fine. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Coming up is Werner Herzog's Grizzly Man. So now we're going to go to the watch list, which, Kevin, as you know, is the segment where every week one host picks a movie that the other host has not seen. We watch that movie and then we get together and we discuss it. So this week, Kevin picked the 2005 documentary by Werner Herzog, Grizzly Man. Um, And I think the official synopsis is, is appropriately sparse and spare. So I'm going to go with that. A devastating and heartrending take on grizzly bear activists Timothy Treadwell and Amy Huguenard, who were killed in October of 2003 while living among grizzly bears in Alaska. And that, that feels sparse and spare and probably appropriate for the setting of the wilds in Alaska surrounded by grizzly bears. But I think that this movie adds an additional layer of, of depth and emotion and insight, I think, from from Werner Herzog, which I, I think is, is fair to say. Um, but I'm curious to know, like, do you think that he actually does any justice to the situation that he's exploring with these two particular people and their demise? I mean, it, it probably depends on your, on your definition of what it means to do justice to a situation like this. I think within the parameters that he sets for himself in, in this film, I think he absolutely does. I think he mm. succeeds with flying colors. And I, I think part of the reason for that is that essentially timothy treadwell uh who is his footage is almost entire it's probably like 75 to 80 percent of everything that we see in this film is treadwell's own footage Mm -hmm. and treadwell you know he's a filmmaker himself he loves the bears as he tells us again and again and again Mm -hmm. um but i i think that one reason this project works so well is that Herzog and Treadwell are essentially two sides of the same coin. They're both filmmakers. Hmm. They're both fascinated by nature. But whereas Treadwell sentimentalizes nature uh, and is um, so so close to it and, and sees himself in it that he kind of almost seeks to subsume himself in it. Hmm. Herzog is detached, clinical, and views the the idea of... Uh, a cuddly, uh, sentimentalized nature with a healthy dose of skepticism. Mm-hmm. And yet, because, and yet he understands Treadwell maybe better than a lot of people would, just in terms of it seems like they have the same interests and they, above all, seem interested in, in the power of the image to both change their own perspective on a subject and also to. Uh, Kindle interest in the hearts of others. Mm. And I think that's kind of what makes Herzog an ideal person to write Treadwell's epitaph, Mm. in a sense. Um, And I also think that it provides a really nice corrective where we get Treadwell on one extreme, we get Herzog on the other, and having them come together kind of gives us a fully three-dimensional, flushed-out picture of, of nature and creation in a way that... Um, I think is frankly ideal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily call it meeting in the middle, but it definitely feels like Herzog is sort of tempering, I think, Treadwell's. Tempering might be a better way to put it, yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think he's tempering Treadwell's enthusiasm. I was really troubled by this documentary, but I think it's the kind of troubled that's actually like extremely productive to to contemplate. And I think part of it is is... The fact that this documentary is both an, an exploration of what happened and how we got to this point and how how this man met his demise and how he brought somebody else to that same fate. And that, I think, is the thing that I find the most deeply tragic, um, which I guess we can get into a little bit later. Um, but I think that it's also just um, an interesting portrait of, of someone who is troubled himself and an attempt to understand who he is and why he does what he does, and in understanding him, not necessarily absolve him of anything that he's done, but maybe come to a better understanding of, of who we are as people as well. So I, I did very much like this documentary, but I was also 
sickened isn't the right word for it necessarily, but I, w- I was really deeply saddened just by mm-hmm. the whole brunt of everything that happened, all of the lives who were touched, the lives who were lost, and then the effect that Treadwell's actions also had on the bears that he was ostensibly trying to protect and save. I think um, there's a moment late in the documentary where Treadwell is filming people who have come to the sanctuary to fish. And one of the bears that he's sort of acclimated to himself comes wandering up to this group looking for food or attention or whatever it is that that he's given them. And the men who are fishing start throwing rocks at this bear to try to drive it away because obviously you don't want a bear near you while you're fishing. And Treadwell is so upset about the fact that somebody threw a rock at this bear that I don't think that he's able to fully connect with the fact that he kind of brought this on the bear as well himself. And I think that's the that's the absolute tragedy here is that he's unable to see everything that he's done and what like the impact of the things that he's done. And he thinks that he's having a very different impact on the environment that he's living in than the one that he actually did have. I think that's I mean, that's one reason why this this film, you know, this is the second or third time I've seen it. Mm-hmm. And it's just as good on repeat viewings and and i think it's if it were a lesser film you would only need to see it the once sort of gawk at the the crazy environmentalist Mm -hmm. uh and and then you'd kind of you know shake your head over uh his his egomania and the the fact that he doesn't really really understand these bears that he claims to to love and understand mm-hmm. and, and then you sort of move on with your life i think because herzog gives over so much of the film to treadwell himself treadwell's footage treadwell's self-narration mm-hmm. um i i think that he allows the audience to come to our own conclusions mm-hmm. which isn't to say that herzog doesn't editorialize he absolutely does mm-hmm. but he it's so obviously editorializing that it's it's not like he's manipulating the audience into coming around to his his point of view. He he basically lets Treadwell say his piece, Herzog says his piece, and then it's up to the audience to decide what we really think of Treadwell and what we really think of nature. And I think that's something that's very intentional and crucial to this film being as magnetic as it is it's a very sober approach which i appreciated very much there's also a moment where he editorializes over what treadwell is saying and it's specifically when treadwell is filming something and then he goes off on a very long rant about how the parks um, service has done him wrong and everybody else in the outside world has done him wrong and he starts um letting the f-bombs fly and he's flipping off the camera and he's furious and he's very clearly working himself up into saying something that he probably would never say around another human being but he's saying it to this camera as confessional let's put a pin in that as well because i want to talk about that and herzog takes the liberty of speaking over what treadwell is saying when the attacks start to get personal he doesn't drag anybody else's name into it he just shows us the footage of treadwell screaming at the camera you can tell what he's saying but you don't need to hear it and you don't need to know who he's talking about to know just how deeply angry and upset this man is. And I really appreciated that as well, because again, Herzog is saying like, this is what I am explicitly doing. And I'm going to show you this because clearly this is something that Treadwell recorded. And it's important to know who he was as a person for you to be able to see this, but you don't need to know the full content of the message necessarily in order for, for the message to fully get across. If that makes sense. I really appreciated that approach very much. It, I, I think this film is also interesting because it gets at something very true about filmmaking and just kind of the artistic process in general. Mm-hmm. Um, the the fact that Treadwell takes these cameras up with him to Alaska. Like he's not all he's not just going to be a hermit. Mm-hmm. He's not just going up there to protect the bears. He's going up there because he wants to capture something on film and even more than that he wants to capture himself interacting with that something Mm -hmm. on film and it's not straightforwardly uh entirely an act of ego i mean obviously there is that element there and you could argue that a lot of artistic endeavors are uh just by dint of being a act of self-expression are 
partly a function of ego. Mm -hmm. But the way that that Herzog explores how it can kind of be all of those things at the same time and not any one of them entirely mm -hmm. um, is really interesting and gets at something very unique to, to cinema specifically, where the camera is an observer, but it's also... It's not an impartial observer. Mm -hmm. The camera can also be an interlocutor. Like you, you can engage with the camera the way that you might another person. And mm -hmm. Treadwell obviously does this multiple times over the course of the film. Mm -hmm. um, you can treat the camera as a tool for capturing something to show to another person to essentially make it part of a community endeavor. It's all these things all mixed together. And... Herzog finds in Treadwell's footage essentially all of those elements of the filmmaking progress at various points manifesting themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's, I, I, I think that's, that makes it a fascinating object. And it also, just like any piece of art, it allows us to understand its creator a little bit better as well. The, the obsessions, the interests, and the passions. And the way that Treadwell films these animals, it does make you love them a little bit. Mm -hmm. And to that extent, I think Herzog is saying Treadwell is a successful filmmaker. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that that ability of Herzog to have that distance from his subject and not try to paper over his flaws while also fully acknowledging his personhood and the real value that he's brought into the world is, again, what separates this from a documentary that's sort of like, look at this weirdo. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, it's interesting. IMDb suggests Tiger King as like, if you liked oh, Grizzly Man, you should watch Tiger different. King. Extremely different. I'm, I'm with you there. Tiger King is, is not what you want to be watching, especially after watching something like this. I think that question of ego is a really interesting one because I think it gets at like my two pronged discomfort with documentaries like as a whole and i think this is a personal discomfort that i'm going to need to work to get around and then also my fascination with this and then with the act of filmmaking in general so the discomfort first is i sometimes have a difficult time separating the documentarian's viewpoint from the subject matter that they're presenting and so I'm, I'm never really entirely sure how to fully engage with a documentary unless the documentarian is telling me up front this is what I think and feel and believe and then here's all of the evidence to that end and some documentarians do this incredibly well I think of Kirsten Johnston in Camera Person in particular and Dick Johnson is dead um, and then I also think of this movie now and probably will for the rest of my life but there are other documentaries where I'm never entirely sure what to think and feel because it feels like the documentarians have the ego to say, this is the absolute truth and my viewpoint and the absolute truth are one and the same. And I'm not entirely sure that that's, that's something that you can say about especially a documentary because so much of the process of making one involves filming the footage, assembling the footage into a way that tells a, a story that is something that you can actually follow as a story. And in the act of telling that story and assembling that footage, you're going to leave stuff on the cutting room floor and you're going to have to leave details out. You're not getting the entire story. You're getting what the documentarian wants to tell you. And I think a very good sober documentarian like Werner Herzog is able to do that and tell you this is what I think and feel and here is what I am showing you and also tells you what he's not going to show you. I very much appreciate that he did not include the audio of Timothy Treadwell's last moments on Earth. Um, just the descriptions of that alone were harrowing enough. And I'm really grateful that he knew his audience and knew that that wasn't necessary to include. Um, and I don't really know where else to go with this other than to lay out like this is this is my friction with this genre as a whole. And I'm not entirely sure how to get around it except to seek out other filmmakers like Herzog who present their stories in this way. Yeah, Herzog doesn't try to pull any fast ones with his documentary filmmaking uh, here. He isn't shy about try about presenting his own viewpoint with with full-on conviction. Mm -hmm. So it, it's not like he's presenting himself as objective. He's very much making it clear that he has a perspective. His film is going to reflect that perspective, mm -hmm. but by very virtue of being transparent in that way, he gives the audience the agency to decide just how far we're willing to follow him out on that limb. Mm -hmm. And I think also going back to your uh, reference to the scene uh, where 
Herzog listens to the the audio. So Treadwell uh, was when, when he and, and Amy were were attacked in their tent by the bear that killed them. Uh, the, the camera was rolling, but the lens cap was on. So all all the so it was recorded, but only the audio was. Mm-hmm. And uh, Herzog does listen to to that audio himself, and he does uh, have the camera. Uh, filming him and one of Treadwell's uh, former lovers uh, while while he listens to it. But the way he frames that shot is very telling. Obviously, he doesn't play the audio, so he doesn't like give us the the prurient interest in like listening to this person's last moments on Earth for our own whatever we get out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't play that, but he also doesn't, for example, keep the camera on his own face so mm. we can watch his reaction like read his face and try to glean okay what's what's going on on that audio track you know kind of try to piece together our own uh picture of treadwell's last moments instead he frames it so he's kind of um three quarters turned away from the camera we kind of kind of like see the side of his face and we can kind of notice the body language that says he is disturbed Mm -hmm. but the camera stays mostly on the face of treadwell's ex-girlfriend as she watches herzog we watch her Mm -hmm. and her face showing the the sadness and shock and loss that she's feeling knowing that herzog is listening to this audio i think that's that's the film's signature shot this this is a film about we are watching treadwell we are feeling things about what uh, about Treadwell's footage? Um, and that's really essentially what Herzog wants us to come away from this film with is what do we make of our own impulses to impose uh, meaning on this mm. one person's life? Um, what does it like when we consume an image or, or make an image on film? Uh, what meaning a come uh, accrues onto that because of us Hmm. and i think that's it's just a fascinating shot and it's it encapsulates kind of everything that's going on in the film the 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 act of filmmaking the act of watching and the um the desire to to know another person but also know that there are some things you simply should not and must not witness and herzog even even tells her after he listens to it he has to turn it off before it's even over Mm -hmm. and he says you must never listen to this you must destroy it and she agrees with him Mm -hmm. i think that's that's the film in a nutshell yeah yeah and i'm grateful that he had the the distance to be able to listen to that footage and understand what was going on and and also to know like he had the wherewithal to tell that ex-girlfriend i believe her name is jewel he has the he has the wherewithal to tell Joel, don't listen to this. This is not for you. You're too close to this situation, and also it's harrowing to listen to. And I'm grateful that he kind of sets him himself up as sort of an interlocutor between us and that footage that Treadwell uses. I'm kind of fascinated by the amount of room that he gives Treadwell to be himself as well. Um, and I think part of that is due to his treatment. Treadwell's treatment specifically of the camera as a confessional. And I think this is that other piece that I was thinking about in in terms of ego and filmmaking and and documentary filmmaking is that people become different people when they are on camera and they know that they're on camera. Like you have to be trained as an actor in order to be able to act on film. It is incredibly difficult to not change who you are when you know that the cameras are rolling. And I think that... The combination of the camera rolling and then also Treadwell knowing that he is out in the woods ostensibly alone, although we do know that he has a girlfriend with him for much of this footage that's been shot. He's going to say and do things that he probably would never really admit to in the quote unquote real world or in real life. And he tells you so much about who he is just explicitly. And he talks about being the protector of the bears and being, you know, a gentle warrior and, um, there was this line that really stuck with me where he says, kind of offhand, I think he's walking through the woods as he says it, I don't know if there's a God, but if, I think that if there was, he would be very pleased with me. And it's that there's a level of hubris in casting himself as the central character in his story and also sort of in the in the story of this wilderness and of these bears and potentially even of the entire world that I just was sort of dumbstruck by because... This guy is literally saying what I think a lot of us tend to say, which is that we're the main character of our respective stories. He just has the guts to say it on camera. Yeah. I, 
yeah. he he he's he says he says that it, it and it is in that moment you're just like wow this yeah. guy he's kind of lost a little bit of perspective but also it is a very uh fundamental maybe one of the most fundamental human impulses to want to be seen and approved of mm-hmm. by god yeah um that's that's it's it's a it's a moment of there's no sort of um he, there's no mask there's no hiding he's not putting on a persona he's letting it all hang out and that moment you kind of you see both the um the the less attractive aspects of that impulse but also the fully understandable uh dimension of it mm-hmm. as well and i i mean it, that's it, it it's just it's fantastic yeah i can't condemn him for saying it because if i were being perfectly honest that is something that i would say to myself like if i were in that same situation i think and i think the fact that herzog just kind of lets that moment slide and says like here's this guy he's going to do what he's going to do wouldn't the rest of us maybe like i don't know it, it feels it doesn't feel like it's a condemnation but it does feel implicating somehow both because we're watching this particular person say these things and cast himself as that central character. And then also understanding that like, that kind of feels human in a way. And I don't know. I'm just, I'm struck that he's able to do that with the backdrop of ostensibly just of, of unfeeling nature and indifferent nature and being able to find that, that love and that care for this other human being who is, who is so, deeply lost in himself that i don't think he's capable of really seeing anybody else on that other side or or i i don't even know if it, it's so much that he's incapable of seeing anyone else it's more that he sees him he sees parts of himself in everything else and i think that's kind of mm. the central danger that herzog highlights here is that treadwell loses the pers- so much perspective that he begins to see himself in the bears mm-hmm. he begins he begins to desire to like he begins to think that the bears are not just animals that he wants to protect and save that he wants to take care of because that's also you know going all the way back to adam and eve that's <laughs> that's a thing as well but he he begins to think that i i'm here to protect them i love them they are my family i i know them <laughs> they, and there's there's kind of this sense that he is he's he's taking on to himself knowledge that he uh that he shouldn't have and that he definitely doesn't have mm-hmm. and that's kind of the uh one of the dangers that Herzog, whether or not you buy into his very jaundiced view of of a brutal, cold, chaotic nature, mm-hmm. that's definitely something that you you can understand and un- you, you you see where that sneaks in in Treadwell and you can kind of maybe after seeing that you can kind of guard against it a little bit in your own heart (laughs) yourself. I do appreciate that Herzog doesn't directly feel the need to contradict every single thing that Treadwell says as he's saying it either. Um, I think at the top of the movie, Treadwell mentions that he's there to protect the bears and Herzog just sort of offhandedly says like, the bears are in a national forest. There's nobody here hunting them. And then he just sort of leaves it at that. And I think just by leaning on the expertise of people who actually understand like ecologists or bear behavioralists or whoever, I think he does enough of the work to lay out the idea that this guy didn't really know what he was doing. I'm not even sure he knew who he was protecting those bears from necessarily. I think that he was just casting himself as as a bear in the middle of the woods, protecting bears from some unknown outside source. Yeah, I don't know. I that's I almost said that that was the biggest tragedy of all of it, but I think a lot of this is just the biggest tragedy, really. Yeah. And yet, it's the note that the film ends on, mm-hmm. where we we see Treadwell sort of walk away from his camera, followed by these two foxes he's essentially domesticated mm-hmm. uh, in the wild. Um, it it and, and Herzog in voiceover talking about how Treadwell's death isn't just a story of a guy who is stupid and got himself killed. There is meaning there Mm -hmm. and it's meaning that we can discover for ourselves. And the way that Herzog uh, helps us discover it isn't by telling us about Treadwell. It's just, it's mostly by just letting Treadwell sort of his footage speak for itself and letting us draw again, draw our own conclusions. And 
I mean, that, that meaning it, it humanizes Treadwell in the best way because we humans are flawed, but also humans are very valuable. And mm -hmm. in his own misguided way, Treadwell was acting out the creation mandate to try to, to, to love the world around him. Mm. And Herzog, even though he thinks Treadwell was misguided, he respects that and he understands it. And he brings us to understanding it as well. I respect it. I think it's a fantastic movie, too. Well, I'm, I'm glad you liked it. Yeah. That is our review of uh, Werner Herzog's Grizzly Man. I was I was really glad to have an excuse to revisit it. So thank you for giving me an excuse to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, next week, I am going to be on vacation. I'm mm -hmm. packing up and taking the family to the great Southwest to uh, visit the folks. So I will not be here for next week, but I know that you already have a plan for the upcoming episode of uh, Seeing and Believing 347. I do have a plan. I'm not sure that I'll call it nefarious or anything, but I also can't promise that the you know virtual recording booth won't be burned down by the time we're done with it. So, Yikes. Well, yeah. <laughs> we're going to have fun, uh, is what I'm saying. So Abiel Chessy, who is a friend and colleague of mine over at Think Christian, is going to be stepping in as a guest host. We're going to be reviewing 3,000 Years of Longing, the long-awaited potentially return of George Miller to the giant screen after um, Mad Max Fury Road, which was his last movie. And then um, because Abby is guest hosting, I've also given her watch list permissions. So she has chosen Peter Weir's 1977 movie, The Last Wave, which can be streamed on a variety of places, but I believe it's also on Criterion, at least until the end of this month. So if you'd Ooh. like to watch along with us, it's I, available. I, I might actually uh, take you up on that. I'll be on vacation. I'll have plenty of time on my hands. So yeah, maybe maybe some movie watching is in order. I'll be following along from uh, a time zone away. Making sure that we don't actually burn down the virtual recording booth. I mean, I can't make sure that you don't do that, but I, I hope that you don't. You can bear witness at the very <laughs> least. Well, listeners, that is our show for this week anyway. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.